It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode of the Creep Street Podcast is brought to you by Martini Coffee Roasters. You know, people always look at me weird when I say I start off every morning with a big old martini. But then I set them straight and I tell them I'm talking about Martini Coffee Roasters Coffee. A delicious coffee made by the Martini family. They roast their coffee using a traditional method of sight and sound to roast those little babies to perfection. And they also sell green coffee beans for those home roasters out there. And right now, fans of the Creep Street podcast can get 20% off their entire order by using the code CREEPSTREET at martinicoffee.com. Once again, for 20% off your order, use the code CREEPSTREET at martinicoffee.com. Martini Coffee Roasters, the perfect coffee to keep you creeps caffeinated. You've taken a wrong turn. Down Creep Street. Citizens of the Milky Way, this is Maureen Bogie. And this is Dylan Hackworth. And welcome to episode 100 of Creep Street podcast i feel alive citizens do you feel alive do you feel it we have arrived at episode 100 first off thank you thank you to all of our listeners we cannot thank you enough for real every week since the first week we we started releasing episodes our community has grown and grown Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we are so grateful and buckle up for a hundred more that's right we have met so many incredible people from all over the world that are a part of the creep street homeowners association and we are so happy to have you all here please keep it up you know keep it going keep letting us know your thoughts your opinions on different episodes thoughts on what you would like to see in the next 100 episodes oh yeah episode suggestions just general vibes you like anything like that please reach out and let us know at any time please we love hearing from you to be kept up on what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram at Creep Street Podcast, Twitter at Creep Street Pod. We're also on Facebook, and we have a subgroup on Facebook called Citizens of the Milky Way. And we ask that you like, rate, subscribe, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, any of those types of things. Oh, we would yeah. love to spread the good word of Creep Street, and just telling someone about us really makes a big difference, and we really do appreciate that. Absolutely. Now, if one episode a week is not enough, for you, we suggest that you head on over to patreon.com slash creepstreetpodcast for bonus content. Ooh. We have anything from full movie commentary up to full bonus episodes and everything in between on our Patreon. And we have 
great things for all three separate tiers. We really, we've got some good stuff on there. You're going to love checking it out. Oh yeah. We're, we're right now we're cooking up. We're going to, for all tiers this month, we're going to be doing a, we're going to rank the paranormal activity movies. Yes. Should be a lot of fun. Very fun. We've been catching up on all of those paranormal movies and gosh darn it. If it isn't a blast. That is true. That is true. A dang blast. Now, Dylan, last week, we got a little zany. Oh, we sure did. We got a little crazy with the Love Has Won cult. Oh, yeah. A very bizarre cult and a very interesting episode, if I do say so myself. But this week, we have something a little different. A horse of a different color, if you will. Today, we are talking about something important to the Creep Street universe. We thought this was perfect to leave for episode 100. Dylan, tell us what is going on today. Citizens of the Milky Way, for episode 100 of the Creep Street podcast, we are talking about the Roswell crash. Oh. Baby, baby, baby. Oh my gosh. UFO, alien, I mean, just gold. Doesn't right get here. bigger than this. No, yes. This is truly, I mean, you don't need me to tell you, but this is truly, in terms of the stuff we talk about, whether mm. it's UFOs, the paranormal, whatnot, this case has impacted world history. Oh, yeah, totally. And what's funny about it is whether or whether or not it was a UFO that crashed, this changed the world. Yes. Regardless of if it was extraterrestrials or not, this right. changed mm-hmm. the world. And of course it changed uh, American history. It really changed the relationship between the American people and the American government. Yes. It really did. Now, real quick, let me give you my sources before I, I, I dive into this because Papa did a lot of reading. Okay, Daddy did it good. Okay, here we go. I have three books I read. Oh, Dylan. One, The Cover-Up at Roswell by Donald R. Schmidt. Witness to Roswell by Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt. And The Day After Roswell by Philip J. Corso. Now, obviously, before we dive into what is the mother of all UFO stories, of all UFO and conspiracy stories. Right, exactly, because it's not just a UFO story. This is one of the big, early kind of cover-up kind of issues. Yeah, this was really the first alien UFO cover-up. This is a story is huge. It is complex because there are so many implications of what Roswell means and the after effect, like the supposed technology that Mm, we got mm -hmm. out of what happened at Roswell. And plus, for every book that comes out about Roswell, there's another book that comes out and says that first book was bullshit and that only they have the true story. Yeah, it's one of those. What I am attempting to do today, I am trying to, at least I did my best, to nail down the actual timeline Mm -hmm. of the first two weeks in July of 1947 and what happened to those people, what they saw, and I did my best to remove any fluff. I wanted Mm -hmm. the real meat and potatoes. And I got to tell you, I loved uh, Witness to Roswell, excellent source, was kind of my main source. Donald R. Schmidt's other book, Conspiracy at Roswell, was invaluable because in it, in one of the appendixes, he has a timeline, a very comprehensive timeline. Oh, nice. Because that's the thing. So much has been added to this story that who really knows? We'll never probably know what happened. Mm -hmm. We're never going to know. And it's almost impossible to decipher what happened and what has been added along the way. Yes. 
But boy, oh boy, the bulk of our story takes place mostly in the first two weeks of July, 1947. But things had been getting a little weird during that week leading up to the Roswell incident. On June 24th, in the Pacific Northwest state of Washington, a search and rescue pilot named Kenneth Arnold sees something he's never seen before, zipping over the Cascade Mountains. He said a cluster of disc-like crafts. In fact, there were nine in total in this cluster. This was immediately followed by a rash of UFO sightings elsewhere in the Pacific Northwest, and within a week, there were UFO sightings reported all across the United States. The late 40s was by far the biggest time for UFO reports. Mm -hmm. Huge. We had just gotten yes. out of World War II, mm -hmm. and the American military was working on some, some stuff that was very experimental and whatnot. So some of these sightings may have actually been U.S. crap, things like that, right, because right. there was things going on. Yeah, this was, I think, probably the biggest, whether or not it's true, biggest flap, I would guess I would say, oh, in, yeah. in uh, U.S. history. The most people were at this time were really, say, a lot of people were saying they saw stuff. Oh, yeah. The military, of course, was quick to take attention to what was going on. Even the Pentagon was eyeballing this situation. Yet apparently every time they would scramble jets to go intervene and see what these things were, they couldn't find them. Now, cut to a week later, Tuesday, July 1st. 1947. And radar at several military bases in New Mexico are picking up these strange anomalies. Bases in Roswell, Albuquerque, White Sands, Alamogordo, all of them detecting these crafts on radar that seem to be operating with capabilities that were completely beyond human technology. They would zip along at what seemed to be like thousands of miles an hour and then just take a sharp turn or vanish mm, altogether. Mm -hmm. The next day, Wednesday, the 2nd, 1947. Radar at the Roswell Air Base continues to pick up these strange craft. On one of the occasions, one of these blips on the radar shoots across the radar screen and then almost appeared to explode in one corner of the radar. At around that same time, it was 9.50 p.m., and in the town of Roswell, a Daniel Wilmot and his wife noticed a strange oval-shaped craft overhead in the sky. The best they could describe them was as, quote, two inverted saucers faced mouth to mouth. Mouth to mouth. So I'm not sure if that was one craft that looked like two saw. I, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. What the fuck does mouth to mouth mean? They flashed through the sky at a high rate of speed, seeming to head to the northwest. A little bit later that same night at 11 p.m., around 65 miles north of Roswell, outside of the town of Corona, New Mexico. There's a huge thunderstorm going on. Now, a quick word about the terrain and the climate of this area. The size of the ranches where this happens are immense. These, these ranches are several mi like square miles in size. Mm -hmm. And in the summer, it's hot. And in the winter, it's cold. And there's heavy winds and rain. July and August, in particular, are like a crazy rain season. Immense amounts of water that will wash out the roads and everything. Keep in mind, too, this is 1947. Most folks out in this rural area didn't even have electricity or phones. Wow. Well, it's 11 p.m., and there's, of course, one of these huge storms out in the desert. Incredible thunder and lightning. And a rancher named Mac Brazel is living and working out on the Foster Ranch with his wife. The ranch owner, J.B. Foster, lives in Texas. He's in his little one-room ranch house on the property that has no running water, no electricity. And they're just watching the lightning storm. And they're relaxing when suddenly they hear a clap of thunder that is so loud 
They're convinced that it wasn't thunder at all, that it was some kind of explosion. And they weren't the only people to hear this. Other ranchers in the area heard it as well. And this is further supported by other witness testimony. At the same time this was going on, other witnesses included a William Woody and his father, a mother superior and Mary Bernadette and sister Capistrano at St. Mary's Hospital, and Corporal E.L. Piles at the Roswell Army Airfield all reported seeing what looked like a flaming object coming down from the northwest. It glowed with a white light and seemed to have a red trail coming from behind it. Mm. So bright and early the next morning, Thursday, July 3rd, 1947, Mac Brazel sets out from his small one-room house in the ranch to attend to the daily work that needs done on the ranch. And being that there was a lot of rainfall and storm the night before, he knew there was probably little extra, you know, things that needed fixing and whatnot. Accompanying him that day was the seven-year-old Timothy Proctor, who usually went by the name D. He was the son of Floyd and Loretta Proctor, who were also ranchers, and they were the nearest neighbors to the Brazels. The Brazels and the Proctors were close, and it was common that Timothy would join Brazel out on the ranch and help him out, as he was probably being trained to be a rancher yeah. when he got older. You it's kind of cute. Yeah. So a quick side note about Timothy Proctor. Apparently for the rest of his life, until he died after this event, he was absolutely terrified to talk about Roswell. Some sources say that if the subject was even hinted at in passing, he would go silent and sometimes nearly run out of the room mm. till the day he died. Shit. The point I'm making here is that whatever did happen out there in the desert of New Mexico, military personnel scared and intimidated people so aggressively that many lived in fear for the rest of their lives, even children. That's so sad. Well, both Brazel and Timothy, they're on horseback. They ride out about 10 miles from the ranch house. That's how big these ranches are. And they come across this large swath of land that is covered in some kind of strange debris. Scattered all around them is what appears to be a kind of strange, lightweight metal and plastic materials. Now, the field of debris was apparently almost three quarters of a mile long and about two to 300 feet wide. But here's something even weirder. Apparently in the middle of the debris field, there was a gouge that cut into the ground that was over 500 feet long, 10 feet wide, but strangely only a few inches deep. But what was weird was it almost looked like the skid of an aircraft, but there was nothing to indicate any kind of propulsion system. Apparently, also, whatever had touched the ground was so hot that it had crystallized the sand into glass. Wow. There was so much debris, in fact, that the sheep they were herding refused to go through it. They had to take them on a two-mile detour Dang. to get around so the sheep could get to the watering hole. These bougie-ass sheep. I know. And plus, this is the desert, so there wasn't much water, so they had to march them quite a while to get to the watering hole. Gosh darn it. On this detour, you know, they're looking at all the debris and Brazel apparently pulled out a 10-foot piece of debris and stored it away in one of the sheds on the ranch. Intrigued by this strange stuff, both Brazel and Timothy took some of the debris back home with them and they showed it to Timothy's parents. And the first thing they noticed about this stuff was, although it was very light, it was seemingly indestructible. Mm. They show it to the proctors and, of course, they're confused by the stuff. And they mentioned to Brazel that they'd actually heard something on the radio about that there was a $3,000 reward down at the radio stations for anyone that was able to find debris and oh. uh, hand it in, you know. Another quick side note, apparently some other interesting things happened this same day in other parts of the country. For example, 
in the town of Circleville, Ohio. Oh, the Circleville writer. A man named Sherbin Campbell contacted his local sheriff's office with a theory because this was all over the news about UFOs in the sky, stuff like that. Yeah. Told his sheriff that he wondered if some of these UFO sightings were perhaps weather balloons. Hmm. He had found a downed weather balloon himself on his property, apparently. Meanwhile, that same day, uh, over in the White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico, which is about 150 miles from Roswell, they were attempting to launch a German V-2 rocket that they had captured. But apparently there was some sort of malfunction in a chemical spill which caused the launch to fail, but it also caused like the launch pad area to go up at a flash fire. Several men were actually badly injured, and the project was put on hold for a few weeks. And that same day at 1.05 p.m. in Portland, Oregon, Police and several civilian witnesses reported seeing what they described as disc-like craft flying information over the city. Mm. Some motorists in Redmond, Oregon, reported seeing a cluster of four craft streak across Mount Jefferson. And on top of that, United Airlines pilot E.J. Smith and his co-pilot observed what they said were five disc-like crafts flying information. And when they zipped out of sight, they suddenly saw a cluster of four more. And on top of that, a Coast Guardsman named Frank Ryman also happened to photograph a similar strange craft flying near Seattle, Washington. So it's a busy day. Yeah, I mean, clearly it's a, a busy lot day. is going on here. Wow. Okay, so something... I don't know. This is these are. All, I, I'm glad that you mentioned these other uh, things that happened because yeah. they may not be technically related to the Roswell crash, possibly, but it's just interesting to see how prevalent this all was at the time. And it seemed like it was coming from the West Coast, like it was mm-hmm. coming off the the Pacific Northwest shore, like they right. were coming. Mm-hmm. So of yeah. course, I'm wondering if you know they're probably thinking the Pentagon. You know, are these Russian? Are these you know who knows what? They're yeah. Doing. That evening. Mac Brazel goes to a joint in Corona called Wade's Bar, a place he would frequent often. He knew the locals. and Oh, yeah, you got to go to Wade's. Oh, yeah. You, you see, at this moment, Brazel definitely thinks the debris is weird, but he's more concerned with just getting it out of the fields. It hasn't really crossed his mind yet that this could be something extraterrestrial. He's more concerned with getting the shit cleaned up. Cows and sheep, sometimes they'll just eat fucking anything. Oh, damn. And he doesn't want them to get sick or die or choke on this whatever this shit is. Right. He does, like I said, he thinks it's just something the military's working on. He, he just wants He just wants to it off of his property. Well, this is the other thing. Like, apparently they would have down weather balloons all the time. Okay, yes. So this was, he thought it was something. So he's like, just clean this shit up, you know, so my animals don't get sick. He didn't, he knew it wasn't a weather balloon. Right. But he didn't right. also, you know, didn't think this was fucking, you know, E.T. or some shit. He knew it wasn't a weather balloon, but he was used to debris coming down. Exactly. Because of weather balloons. So he probably just assumed it was something like that. That, even though he knew it wasn't a actual weather balloon. Right. You know? Well, apparently he had brought some of the debris with him that night to Wade's bar and, and he's passing it around to some of the locals and they're all kind of taking turns to seeing if they can break the stuff, but they can't. But remember this, despite the UFO craze, remember Brazel lives in a one room house with no electricity, no phone, no running water. He has no idea about this UFO craze. So he's not like someone trying right. to cash in on this shit. He would have no fucking clue about it. Right, exactly. And just like the proctors had told him, someone at the bar was like, you know what? They're offering $3,000 to folks who can bring in crash of UFO. So he goes, hey, you know what? How about this? Tomorrow, if anyone who wants to help me clean this shit up, you can take stuff home with you. Oh. Try to cash it in. I just want this stuff cleaned up. Get this up. shit off my lawn. Yeah. So the next day is Friday, July 4th, 1947, Independence Day. Now, this is where the sources I was using kind of start to defer a little bit. But apparently on the morning of July 4th, Brazel rides out to the debris field on horseback 
Accompanying him are his son Vernon, Timothy from the day before, and friends Sidney White and the Eddington brothers. They're approaching the debris field when up in the distance, they see in the sky these hawks circling. And they think, oh great, some of the livestock has died. So they keep riding to, toward where these hawks are circling. And it's about two and a half miles southeast from the main debris field. They come upon the high bluff where the hawks are circling. And now they could smell something awful. And they assumed it was a mm. dead animal. But apparently it wasn't. According to one of my sources, what they found were two small bodies. Mm. And whatever they were, they weren't human. Brazel immediately heads back to Corona to the general store, which apparently had one of the only few phones in the area. He called his boss, J.B. Foster, down in Texas and asked him what to do. He told him to tell the authorities. So now only one of my sources, though, says that Brazel was the one to find bodies. Bodies will come in later. Mm -hmm. But another important thing to note is that this Roswell incident apparently involves two crash sites. If you ask some people, it's up to like five. Exactly. I've heard that it's like some people don't even think that it should be called Roswell, this whole Exactly. It should phenomenon. be called the, technically, the, it's just Roswell was where it was first reported. Right. But what all of my sources do say is that on July 4th, word had already managed to get around about this debris field and, of course, this $3,000 reward. So there's other folks in the area picking out souvenirs and taking them home for themselves. Apparently, debris was even being passed around at the annual 4th of July rodeo that evening in Capitan, New Mexico. So the locals knew about this days before the military starts getting involved. Mm -hmm. So now the next day is July 5th, 1947. And this whole time, the Pentagon has been watching this UFO shit very closely because, you know, all these strange radar phenomena that right. they're picking up. At the Pentagon that day was an Army Air Force captain named Thomas Brown, and he was chatting with a Major Donald Kehoe of the United States Marine Corps. Apparently, Brown was overheard telling Kehoe, We just can't ignore it. There are too many reliable pilots telling the same story. Flat, round objects able to outmaneuver ordinary planes and faster than anything we have. And apparently, some base commanders had even been given the go-ahead by the Pentagon to start shooting down whatever these mysterious crafts were. Oh, shit. Because they couldn't chase them. Right, so right. So they were like, well, might as well just fucking shoot one if you can, if, even, if you even can. Kind of going back to uh, the Bell Witch there when they saw that uh, half dog, half rabbit. Exactly. If you can't catch it, shoot it. That's right. Well, on Sunday, July 6, 1947, Razzle gets up early this morning and he quickly takes care of the work that needs done on the ranch. And he loads up two full boxes of this strange debris and he begins the 75-mile drive to Roswell. Now let's take a quick moment to talk a little bit more about this debris. I mentioned it earlier, but I want to get mm -hmm. more specific. Okay. There was apparently different kinds of debris. Some of it was this weightless tinfoil-like metal. It was incredibly light, yet it seemed indestructible. Then there was this sort of liquid metal. Some call it memory metal, too. People could apparently pick this stuff up, and it would sort of like mold to their hand, and then they could just sort of toss it off, and it would go back to normal. Wow, weird. Ooh. Then, as you will see later, there's found almost what are these sort of structural I-beams that are sort of like, you know, for structural purposes, but they're as light as balsa wood. What the fuck? Yet indestructible, but we're going to get more into that because that's a big part later. Yeah, we got to get into that. So Brazel gets to Roswell and he goes right to the courthouse. And inside, he goes to the office of Sheriff George Wilcox. He shows them this strange debris. 
Sheriff Wilcox is kind of perplexed by the stuff, so he dispatches two deputies out to Foster Ranch to go see for themselves. Well, at this moment, when Brazel was in the sheriff's office, the phone rings. He answers it, and on the other line is reporter Frank Joyce, who worked as a reporter and announcer there in Roswell at the local KGFL radio station. And apparently it was common on slow news days, Joyce would call up uh, Wilcox at the sheriff's office to see if there was any local news to report. Mm-hmm. Well, Sheriff Wilcox was just like, hey, you know, I think I got a story for you. And he hands the phone to Matt Brazel. Oh, come on, here we go. News time, news alert. Now, years later, Joyce, in an interview, would reveal, apparently, what this conversation he had with Brazel on the phone. This is directly from our source, Witness to Roswell. I will be reading the part of Rancher Mac Brazel, and Maureen will be reading the part of radio reporter Frank Joyce. Who's going to clean all that stuff up? That's what I want to know. I need someone out there who can clean it up. What stuff? What are you talking about? Don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's from one of them flying saucer things. Oh, really? Then you should call the airbase. They are responsible for everything that flies in the air. They should be able to help you out or tell you what it is. Oh, God. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? It's horrible. Horrible. Just horrible. What's that? What's horrible? What are you talking about? The stench. Just awful. Stench? From what? What are you talking about? They're dead. What? Who's dead? Little people. Unfortunate little creatures. What the? Where? Where did you find them? Someplace else. Well, you know, the military is always firing rockets and experimenting with monkeys and things, so maybe... God damn it! They're not monkeys! And they're not human! They're frogs. Keep in mind, this was apparently an interview Joyce gave. Also, quick side note, there was literally a 30-year block of time after Roswell where people just forgot about this. Yeah, like no one talked about it, yeah. Witnesses didn't start coming forward again until the 70s. So who knows? This is an interview Joyce gave many, many years later. Right. So Brazel essentially tells Joyce about all this weird shit. And Joyce recommends him tell the military about what he found. And there's actually, a, even though that's, we're going to learn, was a mistake, there's a good reason, though, why... Oh, absolutely. There's a very good reason why Joyce told him to do that. The, the Roswell Air Base was home to the 509th Bomb Group, and as of that moment in history, they were the only bomb battalion that was nuclear-capable. Mm. All of those nuclear tests, they had been conducting, they had been conducting these tests outside of Roswell and Damn. stuff. Damn, okay. So who knows if this shit isn't radioactive, you know, and he's bringing right. it into town, giving it to the sheriff and shit. Touching you know? it, holding it. Yeah, that's another thing, you guy. I we've mentioned this before. If you, by any chance, come across some metals that you don't really know what came from, yeah. just don't touch them because it could be bad news. So Sheriff Wilcox is actually, before he was kind of just taking this all with a chuckle, but after hearing that, he's kind of like, ah, that's actually kind of a smart idea. So he actually makes the call himself mm -hmm. to Roswell Air Base. And he gets in contact with intelligence officer Major Jesse Marcel, who will become a key player in this story. So Marcel takes this info and passes it on up to his superior, commanding officer Colonel William Blanchard. And Blanchard orders Marcel to go see what this is all about. So Marcel drives out to the sheriff's office. He interviews Brazel in person. And he looks at some of the debris he brought with him. Marcel's intrigued by this stuff. It's strange. And he asks Brazel if he can 
take a sample of it with him back to the base. And of course, Brazel says, sure. So Marcel takes this stuff back to the base and immediately reports back to Blanchard. Blanchard orders Marcel to return to the sheriff's office and have Brazel take him to the debris field in person. And he also orders senior intelligence officer who was assigned there at the base, Captain Sheridan Cavett, to accompany Marcel. Mm. So Marcel and Cavett get in a Jeep and drive back to the sheriff's office. But whatever this shit was that Brazel had found, it apparently alarmed Blanchard. Because right after he sent Marcel and Cavett out, he gets on the phone and calls his boss, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, who was stationed at Carswell Air Base in Fort Worth, Texas. But General Ramey actually, at this moment, is out for the holiday weekend. He's on a long holiday with his family. And while he's gone, Ramey's Chief of Staff, Colonel Thomas Du Bois, is filling in for him, and Du Bois is actually the one who answers Blanchard's call. Blanchard relays to him all the information, and after hanging up with Du Bois, Du Bois puts in a call to the Pentagon, to Major General Clements McMullen, who was at that same time Deputy Commander of Strategic Air Command at the Pentagon. Wow. He tells Du Bois to have Blanchard get some of that debris collected, sealed, and sent immediately to Carswell Air Base in Fort Worth. Then, as soon as it arrived in Fort Worth, they were to hand off some of it to be flown to Washington, D.C. And then once it got to D.C., McMullen would send a sample of the debris via personal courier on a plane to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. And just like a well-oiled machine, the moment the plane from Roswell landed in Fort Worth, Du Bois and the base commander Alan D. Clark were there waiting for the handoff. Immediately, they take possession of the sealed package, and then Alan Clark gets on a plane headed for D.C., Literally, this is all one day. Like, literally. Boom, boom, boom. So keep in mind, I'll make sure every new day to give you the date. Okay. So you can tell there's so much shit that's happening in one single, like, days at a time. Seriously. And there's a lot of names. I did my best to, like, there's a lot of titles and private first class and and Mm -hmm. major general sergeant. I'll do my best to keep all of that organized for you. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Marcel and Cavett, they take off from the sheriff's office with Brazel, and they head out to Foster Ranch. Now, remember, Sheriff Wilcox sent out those two deputies before to just check on it. Well, not long after Marcel and Cabot left with Brazel, the two deputies returned. And they weren't able to find the location of the debris field, but they did say they had found a burned patch of land, and it looked as though the sand had turned into glass. Mmm, the sandy glass, glassy sand. So, cut over to Marcel, Cavett, and Brazel. They drive out to the ranch, the Three Stooges. Oh, come on. And as we know, the very best kind of road you're going to get out there in 1947 is a dirt road. Because of the rainy season, it takes them a while, even with a Jeep, to get back there. Mm. And it's dusk by the time they get back. So it's too dark to really do any work. So the men set up in the Heinz house, which was right next to the livestock shed where Brazel had stored that 10-piece Oh, right. Foot of debris or whatever. The men were going to camp out there that night and begin their work in the morning. And that night, they dined on crackers and beans and waited for the sun to rise. So right at the break of day, on the next morning, which it's now Monday, July 7th, 1947, the men wake up early in the Heinz house and head out to the wreckage site. And this marks the officially the first time that military personnel have been to the site. The first thing Marcel notices is the sheer size of the debris area. The debris was scattered, like I said, like three quarters of a mile from a west to east direction, and it branched out in almost like like a fan pattern for Mm. hundreds of feet. 
Neither officer had seen anything like this before. And the metal debris is, you know, as thin as wrapping paper, yet seemingly indestructible. Hmm. Marcel tells Brazel that essentially they'll take it from here and that Brazel can go about his day and get back to the work he needs to do. So Marcel got in a jeep and Cavett on horseback and the two men begin their work surveying this debris. One of the first thing Marcel notices is there seems to be no sign of an engine or propulsion system that the craft would run on. Hmm. So Brazel takes off back to the ranch house, and while he's en route, he bumps into Robert Scoggins, who's a police officer for the Lincoln County State Police. I guess they knew each other personally. He shows Scoggins some of this strange debris, and like everyone else, Scoggins is kind of wowed by it. He tells Brazel he can take a little piece of it back to Roswell himself and see if he can't get any answers, being mm-hmm. a policeman, you know. So buckle up now, because a lot of weird shit is about to happen. Buckle up. In like up. a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. If you're in a car, you should have already been buckled up. But even if you're not in a car, get in a car to buckle it. Now, according to one of my sources, at this very same time, a group of archaeologists from Texas Tech University were working on an excavation site that was about 40 miles north of Roswell. And this group was led by a man named Dr. Curry Holden. As they're working, they apparently come across a strange egg-shaped object that looks as though it's embedded into the terrain like by impact. Hmm. And as they approach this object, they apparently notice three small bodies with large heads. Mm. Dr. Holden, I guess, sent one of the people in the group to rush back to Roswell to report a crash of some kind. At this same time, Walt Whitmore Sr., who was the majority owner of KGFL Radio, where Joyce works at, Mm -hmm. he's starting to smell a lucrative scoop here. And uh, he decides he's got to drive out to Foster Ranch himself and bring back Brazel to the station for an exclusive interview. That's right. And after that, he's going to hide Brazel at his own home in mm-hmm. Roswell because he knows, if not the government, other media is going to be looking for him. Wow. He wants that story. This baby. is intense. When they start to see how much the government's caring about this, they're like, hey, we want this story, baby. Right. Get the tea, as it were. Meanwhile, that person from the, I guess that group of archaeologists has arrived in Roswell, and he tells Sheriff Wilcox about this supposed crash and these bodies they stumbled on. And it's debated if, like I said, what some sources say there were no bodies. Some say it, sources say it was Brazel that found them. Others say it was this group of archaeologists. So just keep that in mind. Okay. So Sheriff Wilcox immediately calls the local fire department to report this crash, in case they you know need that out there, as well as ambulances and stuff. But here's the kicker. Right before the fire department takes off, they receive a call from Roswell Air Base. And they're informed that this is a military issue and that they have it under control and there's no need for them to drive all the way out there. Hmm. Keep in mind, this place is 40 miles out of Roswell. The fire chief is also thinking, well, if we do go all the way out there for nothing and then like a real fire happens here, that's right. pretty shitty too. Like if you Yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the fire department doesn't respond, but it's funny that the Ros they called just in time. Yeah, almost, just in enough time. Almost as if the calls were being listened to. Mm. So the fire department doesn't respond, but there's something about it that just doesn't seem right to the fire crew chief, Dan Dwyer. So Dwyer, uh, with a friend of his named Lee Reeves, they decide to hop in a car and drive out to the site to see for themselves. And to their astonishment, they apparently came across these same alien bodies. <gasps> One of them apparently alive. <gasps> now, oh no! none of my other sources had this part. This was in Caruso's book. In Caruso's book, 
He goes into great detail saying that this being was somehow able to communicate via his mind. Oh, we've heard this many, many times. Not so much that it was saying words, but that it was communicating that it was scared and that it knew it was going to die soon. According to Caruso, one of these beings even tried to make a break for it, but was gunned down by a soldier. (gasps) These passages in Caruso's book are super cool, but not saying these things didn't happen. But this is just an example of things that may have been added on. Mm-hmm. But who knows? If, it's just the way it's written. It's like an action script. It's like right. a great like a thriller or something. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, so it's fun to read. But who knows if that actually happened? Oh, could you imagine just stumbling upon an alien like that and seeing one in such a dire state? Oh yeah. Oof. And and keep in mind, so this is apparently the second crash site. I don't know if that means these are two separate crafts that went down. The impression I was getting was that there were different crash sites, but one, so like maybe almost like a rock skidding across water, maybe it hit the ground, but almost like a rut and skip for a few more miles until it finally. So maybe that's why on where the one that Brazel found, there's like a lot of debris, but then mm. two and a half miles away, it's where the bodies are. That's what I was kind of thinking too. Like, that it yeah. was like a, because it was going so fast, the right. debris and also the bodies were spread out over such a wide space. Right. Like almost like they were trying to get control over it, trying to land it. Yeah. Something, mm-hmm. you know. So or th- even if it just kind of exploded in the air. Exactly. It still would spread out so much because it was going so fast, you know? Right. But that's just that's just what has always been my kind of thought to it. But maybe right. there was more than one, yeah. one craft. The impression I always took was that it was one craft that sort of mm-hmm. hit a few different places on the way down. Right. But I could be wrong. That's just me in my That's kind of what I always thought, too. But... Whether or not this really happened, Dwyer and Reeves barely had any time to register what they were seeing when suddenly a military convoy came speeding over the hills and was on them in a second. The military jumped out and tells them to get the hell out of here and like roughed them around, like, you know, push (gasps) them around, tells them to get the hell out of here, forget what they've seen. And there's many reports of that throughout the of people literally getting physically accosted. Mm, Yeah. And as they're leaving, They watch as a group of what they assume is soldiers and engineers descending upon the wreckage to extract the bodies. And afterwards, this group of military actually sent out for an ambulance and a flatbed truck. Now, here comes once again a quick montage of events that happened all over the country but around the same time. It's all revolving around this incident. Okay. So as Frank Dwyer and Lee Reeves are leaving the ranch north of Roswell, his 12-year-old daughter, Frankie, was just arriving at the fire station to say hi to her dad. She didn't know he wouldn't be there, of course. Right at that same time, Officer Scroggins, who bumped into Brazel earlier, pulls up to the fire station, and he's got a piece of that debris that Brazel gave him. Apparently, they're in the station, and he shows it to some of the other fire station guys and even shows it to Frankie. And like everyone else, there seems like it's indestructible. It's this weird stuff. All while this is going on, New Mexico senior Senator Carl Hatch has to hop on a last-second flight to Washington, D.C. for an emergency meeting with President Truman. Damn, okay. How we know this is because these records are recorded. Now, granted, we don't know why the New Mexico senior senator had an emergency meeting with, it could be unrelated. I'm sure they would tell you it was unrelated. We're just adding this info because it paints an interesting picture. It paints a very interesting picture. I mean, what are the chances that Truman would need to speak to the senior senator that quickly on that day when all of this is happening. I don't know. I don't know. 
High up military and intelligence brass are also being alerted. For example, after uh, getting off the phone with Hatch, President Truman allegedly dispatches two of his secret servicemen to Roswell, a Richard McCann and Raymond DeVinney, and their orders are to essentially oversee the activity at Roswell. Deputy Commander of the Air Force Air Staff, Hoyt Vandenberg, was apparently tied up on phone calls all day regarding the UFO phenomena, and he would actually be promoted to general on October 1st, just a few months later. Lieutenant General Twinning and commander at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, had to cancel an inspection of the Boeing plant at the last second for an emergency flight to New Mexico. Mm, mm, mm. Also at Wright Field that day is First Lieutenant James Gilliam, who is ordered to pilot an unexpected flight to New Mexico. And on board this flight are Major General Lawrence Crage, who is Chief of the Army Air Force's Research and Engineering Division at the Pentagon, and apparently at Wright Field was the hub for military technology and working on reverse engineering captured technology, so it makes sense. Now, cut back to the debris field. Marcel and Cavett are unable to find anything resembling an engine. They spend the rest of the day picking up large pieces of debris and loading them up into vehicles. And they take as much as they can, but obviously they can't get all of it. So what they do is they organize the debris as best they can into an area roughly the size of a football field. Two guys, and they're probably in their mili- like their suits and shit, you know. Now, just because they couldn't find a propulsion system doesn't mean they didn't find anything else interesting. Okay. This is the big, this is a huge one. Marcel and Cavett find in the debris what appears to be one of these I-beam-like things, these structural pieces. Right, know? right. And of course, like I said, it's freakishly light. It's like balsa wood, except it doesn't break like balsa wood. Mm-hmm. Except these I-beams appeared to have a series of symbols on them. The best Marcel could describe them was like hieroglyphics, but without animals or people. Hmm. It was just like symbols or shapes. But this was not any language he was familiar with. Remember, Marcel's job as an intelligence officer would be knowing the origin of downed aircraft. So even if it's not US aircraft, say it was German, Russian, Chinese, he would at least be able to recognize Mm -hmm. the country of origin. This was nothing he had ever seen before. That's scary. And there's actually a famous photo of one of these I-beams, you can see, that apparently the language written on it is a form of ancient Greek. (gasps) Now remember that. Ancient Greek. We're going to save that to the theories. Remind me about that at the end when we're talking about theories. Oh, okay, will do. At around dusk that evening, Marcel sends Cavett on ahead back to Blanchard with some of the debris. Marcel himself sticks around a few hours more and then makes his way back to the base. That same evening... Whitmore and reporter Judd Roberts conduct a wire-recorded interview with Brazel, and in it, he mentions the bodies that he found near the debris field. Remember, Whitmore is hiding Brazel at his home during all of this. Hmm. In fact, Walt Whitmore Jr., Whitmore's son, was home from college and was surprised when he came home to see a stranger already in his bedroom. That was Brazel. (gasps) Oh, that's funny. Because his dad was hiding him out there. And to close the night out, allegedly sometime that evening, a large truck carrying dry ice from a local dairy arrives at the base and is stored in one of the huge freezer lockers not far from the heavily guarded Hangar P3. So now it's the wee hours in the morning of Tuesday, July 8th. It's around 2 a.m. when Jesse Marcel gets back to Roswell, but he doesn't immediately report back to the base. He knows whatever this stuff is, it's something special. 
And he also knows that very soon it's going to be classified as top secret. Mm-hmm. That's right. And since it hadn't yet, he wanted to do one more thing before returning to the base. He stops at his own home, which is about 10 miles north of town. He wakes his wife and 11-year-old son, Jesse Jr., and he shows them this strange material. And they apparently spent about an hour looking at it in the kitchen, just like playing with it, trying to break wow. it, couldn't do it. Marcel takes the next few hours to rest, clean himself up, and at 6 a.m., him and Cavett report to Blanchard in his private quarters at the base. On Blanchard's orders, extreme security measures are quickly erected over at Foster Ranch, complete with armed guardsmen. All outside roads that lead to the ranch are closed off. Armed guards were stationed around the immediate area of the wreckage. Then a second perimeter that circled essentially like that outlined mm. the ranch. And then on top of that, riflemen were stationed in the hills all over to shoot anyone who got too damn close. Wow. The entire ranch house was all now all taken over by the U.S. military. No one who wasn't authorized could even come close. At 7.30 a.m., at Roswell Base was the regularly scheduled staff meeting, but this wasn't the regular staff meeting because some special folks were in attendance. Not only was Blanchard, Marcel, and Cavett there, but also General Ramey and Colonel Thomas Du Bois, among others. Special units had also been brought in from other bases in New Mexico and Texas. Having arrived from D.C. the night before was photographic specialist Sergeant Frederick Benthal. He's driven out to the crash site by a military truck, Apparently, Benthal photographed the bodies that were located under a tent and under a canvas tarp. But as soon as he was done with his camera, the film was confiscated and taken back to Roswell. Also out on the crash site is a Sergeant Melvin E. Brown of K-Squadron, who's tasked with guarding an ambulance on site. Ooh. His orders, of course, are don't let anyone near the ambulance and don't look under the tarp. Of course, Brown can't help himself, and according to one of my sources, peeps under this tarp to see an alien body. <gasps> and what do the alien bodies really look like? They describe them as about three to four feet tall, grayish brown skin, mm -hmm. big eyes with that are kind of set back, big heads... So it's kind of your typical gray alien. Your typical alien. gray alien, really. Okay. Well, now back in Roswell, it's about to take a darker turn. Military police at the base are ordered to find Brazel ASAP and apprehend him. And they know that the media is probably harboring him, so the first place they go to is right to the home of KGFL majority owner Walt Whitmore. Brazel is abducted, and the wire interview they conducted is confiscated. As Brazel is being escorted from Whitmore's home, the phone rings. Whitmore answers it to find that it's the FCC in Washington on the phone. Mm. And they tell him not to dare air that interview because if he did, his broadcast license would be revoked. Oh my God. And as a cherry on top, a minute after that phone call, the phone rings again. And it's the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. And he called just to say, hey, listen, whatever the FCC tells you to do, do it. Oh my God, this is so freaky. Elsewhere in town, a local mortician named Glenn Dennis at the Ballard Funeral Home receives a bizarre call from the military base asking him if he had any child-sized coffins mm. available. What I know. the fuck? And many think that maybe that was because if people thought it was people in there, they wouldn't be curious to like look. I see, okay. Because you know? I was wondering, I'm like, do they really... 
at this point are they really thinking about having like a proper burial right. i would think no but that does make sense they're trying to maybe kind of get the scent off their, right. tra- their trail a little bit there and apparently a, a truck driver was contracted to drive up three caskets from amarillo texas around noon slash early afternoon the alien bodies that were supposedly in the ambulance at the crash site arrive at the base and are taken to hangar p3 and apparently this hangar was under intense guard guards being given orders basically to shoot anyone who comes too close here's where i can't understand Mm -hmm. what happened and what i think is one of the strangest things about this whole story at around 11 a.m my sources say that Blanchard called Walter Hout to his office to have him dictate a press release that would immediately be taken to KGFL and KSWS radio stations there in Roswell. But here's where everything hits the fan. At 2.26 p.m., the Associated Press releases a news bulletin announcing the Army Air Forces have recovered a flying disc. <gasps> And within minutes, the phones at the base are ringing off the hook. Major Jesse Marcel is the only person mentioned by name in that press release. And keep in mind that while all this is going on, Brazel is being detained and interrogated at the base in a guest house. Mm -hmm. At about 2.50 p.m., Blanchard announces that he's going on immediate leave and won't speak to anyone. He then hops into a military jeep and is driven out to the crash site by a private first class Frank Martinez. Once there, Blanchard sets up a base of operations in one of the buildings on the ranch that's apparently equipped with a direct phone line. At 2.55 p.m., the AP releases what is called a 95, simply stating again that the Army Air Force has recovered a flying disc. At 3 p.m., Major Marcel is told he is to fly to Wright Field in Ohio with some of the wreckage. But when Marcel boards the plane that day, he didn't know that the three packages they sent with him were not actually filled with debris, but with scraps from a downed weather balloon. What? He did, however, have a personal shoebox size package with the real debris in it. Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya, who would actually go on to be New Mexico's senator and congressman in the future, happened to be already in Roswell that day for the dedication of a new aircraft. Now remember, this was just a holiday weekend, and Montoya was apparently the only state official that was available to come in, so he's summoned and taken directly to Hangar P3 Hmm, for undisclosed reasons. Now, apparently when Montoya saw the bodies... If he even did, he was incredibly shaken by it. And by many accounts, one of the bodies even moved. (gasps) Oh, that's so chilling. Years later, his chauffeur that was driving him would say that Montoya came out of the hangar and quote, like a bat out of hell. And as soon as they got back in the car, he shouted, come on, let's go. Let's get the hell out of here. He had the driver drive him back to his home because he couldn't calm down until he had a drink. Apparently, all he could say was, they're not human. (gasps) They're not human. Oh, shit. I mean, can you blame the guy? Uh, I mean, it's nuts. There's so much I want to talk about. We're going to save it to the end because there's so much wild shit. Oh, God. And I cannot I, wait. I want to just get through the the timeline so then we can talk about... Talk. We can just pop off on that yes. wild shit. Well, cut to Marcel. He's currently midair on a flight, a B-29 bomber called Dave's Dream, headed toward Wright Field in Ohio, when suddenly the plane makes an abrupt change in destination. It's now going to Carswell Base in Fort Worth, Texas. Apparently another plane with the real wreckage was already on its way to Wright Field. Hmm. Marcel's plane touches down in Fort Worth at about 5 p.m. and Marcel reports directly to General Ramey's office with the box of debris. Once in the office, 
Marcel sets down the box of debris and Raimi asks him to follow him over to the map room because Raimi wants Marcel to basically mark out the exact latitude, longitude of where mm-hmm. this crash site was. But this was a ruse. When they returned to the general's office, the box of debris that Marcel had brought was gone. <gasps> and in its place in the middle of the floor were the remains of an old rotten weather balloon. Oh my God. And a new foil radar reflector and wooden sticks. Waiting outside the general's office is a swarm of journalists waiting to know what the hell is going on. Entering the office now are Thomas Du Bois and Major Charles Cashin, who is the base public information officer. Marcel is ordered by Ramey to pose for photos with the weather balloon material. And it is now that Marcel realizes what is happening. He does what he's asked, and Cashin takes two photos of him posing with the weather balloon. Ramey then orders Marcel to leave the room and not talk to the press. Marcel would actually be kept in Fort Worth for the next 24 hours. General Ramey then emerges from his office for a press conference in which he announces that the flight to Wright Field had been canceled, and he allows one journalist by the name of Johnson into his office. Ramey poses with the balloon stuff for four photos, and then he orders Du Bois to never speak of this incident again. Right around this time, the War Department in Washington sends out an order to all field agents that if asked about flying saucers, they are to imply that it's probably just weather balloons and radar targets. Damn. 6 p.m. Central Time. Warrant Officer Irving Newton from the base's weather office gets a stern order from General Ramey to get his ass over to the office. Now there's a small number of reporters in Ramey's office. And in front of them, Newton is asked to identify the debris on the floor, which he says is a weather balloon. Mm -hmm. He then poses for the balloon wreckage for a photo and is sent back to work. They are really trying to show these reporters that it's just a balloon. At 6.17 p.m., the Dallas branch of the FBI sends a teletype message to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, Mm. informing him that according to the military, it was just a weather balloon that caused all this hullabaloo. And that was what prompted the false press release from Roswell. But here's what's interesting. The FBI also tells Hoover that the original plane from Roswell to Wright Field did not get canceled. Remember, General Ramey told the press the flight carrying the wreckage that was on its way to Dayton, Ohio, was apparently canceled. Well, apparently the FBI is telling Hoover that the flight still headed to Dayton, Ohio. At 6.29, another press bulletin is published by the Associated Press, saying it was all a false alarm. Hmm, okay. The flying saucer was actually just a downed weather balloon. That's what's crazy to me. It's like, these people would know the difference between a flying saucer and a weather balloon. Oh, yeah. I don't under... First, like, maybe just some person could make a mistake of not really knowing what a weather balloon looked like, but I would think anyone would know the difference between a flying saucer and anything else. Oh, yeah. So, what the actual hell? The doctors and nurses that worked at the base hospital there in Roswell were surprised when they were all relieved of their normal duties. Hmm. McBoyle calls up reporter Lydia Sleppy at... KSWS in Albuquerque to give her an update on the debris field. But while they're on the phone, McBoyle has to excuse himself a moment. Sleppy can hear the sound of a hushed argument (gasps) on the other end of the phone line. After a moment, McBoyle picks the phone back up and tells Sleppy to forget everything she's been told. And after hanging up, 
Sleppy quickly tries to type up a teletype message, but before she can transmit it, a message comes in from the FBI office in Dallas, who tell her this message cannot be sent due to national security reasons. Oh my God. Meanwhile, Dan Dwyer, the the fireman, he's back at the station finishing up his work, while at the same time at his home, military police come to his house looking for his daughter, Frankie. They threaten the family, telling them that harm will come to them if they tell anyone about what they've seen. Apparently, Frankie, the 12-year-old daughter, was taken out onto the porch by one of the officers who had a baseball bat in his hand. (gasps) And he just sort of tapped it in his hand and said something to the tune of, you know, little girls go missing all the time in the desert. What a fucking coward. I know. To threaten a child like that. I mean, go fuck yourself, honestly. Like, I don't care if you think what you're doing is right. Right. Like, or for a, a greater purpose, all's well that ends well. Uh... No, you're a fucking asshole. That's a child. Absolutely, yeah. F*** off and die, you piece of shit. By that evening, in one corner of the base, a chain-link fence is erected around this large tent. And guards are stationed all around it and, and are ordered to, quote, shoot anything that isn't a rabbit. Oh, my God. Whatever was being kept in that tent overnight, they were ordered to use lethal force to defend it. At 8 p.m. Central Time, the flight carrying the wreckage that lands in Wright Airfield in Dayton, Ohio, the wreckage is taken to a special part of the base, reserved for Foreign Technology Division. At 10 p.m. Mountain Time, ABC News makes a statement that General Ramey has identified the wreckage as being a downed weather balloon. So just before midnight that evening, one of the photographs of Marcel posing with the balloon stuff is wired to New York for the news. And apparently, just a side note, this was the first time in history, first photograph ever wired from Roswell to New York. Oh, wow. Earlier that evening, trucks carrying large floodlights were stationed around the debris site. So now the whole debris field's lit up like a Mm. football, you know, like at night when you go to a sporting event. Wednesday, July 9th, 1947. By 6 a.m., The media is reporting that the supposed UFO crash at Roswell was just a weather balloon and nothing to worry about. Back in Roswell that day, Floyd Proctor and Lyman Strickland arrive in town coming from their ranches in Corona when they happen to see Mac Brazel being escorted by three military officers. They walk right by him as he's being escorted and they notice that he doesn't even look at them or acknowledge them in any way. Now, one might think that maybe this is because Brazel's embarrassed that he's in custody and whatnot, but perhaps Brazel knew not to acknowledge them so that they wouldn't get pulled into this shit. Hmm. The officers escort Brazel downtown to the offices of the Roswell Daily Record where he is forced to give a revised testimony of what he had seen out there in the fields, a testimony that backs up the weather balloon narrative. And all around this time, General Ramey's weather officer, Irving Newton, makes another statement to the press, which one could argue is the first revision that the U.S. government has made to their own story, as he explains that, it, yeah, it was a weather balloon, but it was a special kind of weather balloon. Oh, okay. One that can go higher than the human eye can see. And here's a theory of why they felt they needed to make this revision. Remember, Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer, like I said, he would be able to recognize a down fucking weather balloon. Right. Part of his job is being able to identify that shit. So imagine if you're Marcel and you're following orders, General Ramey makes you pose with these pieces of balloon stuff. That was probably humiliating. Yeah. And it seems to indicate that this high-ranking intelligence officer wouldn't know a fucking down weather balloon from a flying saucer. Mm -hmm. So making it special may have been some way to divert that. An unidentified military officer apparently for the next few days sweeps through local media outlets and confiscates anything pertaining to the original flying saucer report. 
General Crage lands in D.C. after a direct flight from Roswell. Him and another report directly to President Truman about what's been going on. So Mac Brazel is still in the custody of authorities. After being taken to the offices of the Roswell Daily Record, he's taken to KGFL Radio to do another live interview with Frank Joyce. But this time, of course, he tells the balloon story and that this was all a big deal over nothing. And Joyce is kind of taken back by this. Like, really? So after the interview, Joyce walks Brazel out to the lobby of the station and he's surprised to see a large number of military officers waiting to escort Brazel away. And Joyce thinks that's kind of weird that the military would care this much about a down weather balloon. Mm -hmm. And as Brazel's leaving, Joyce apparently calls out to him and says, hey, what about the little green men? Mm. Brazel turns to him and apparently says, they weren't green. (gasps) Well, Brazel's son, Paul, is also a rancher. He works on a ranch down in West Texas. He hears about this predicament his dad's in, so he makes the drive up to Roswell to tend to the ranch while his dad's in custody. But he gets to Foster Ranch tries to go to the ranch stable so he could water and feed the pinned up horses, but is immediately roughed up and thrown out by Mm. military police. And he said in later in life that what bugged him the most is he said, I knew they wouldn't take care of those animals. Like, I just thought that was so sweet that he was concerned, like he knew they weren't going to get fed. Yeah. Oh, that is sad and sweet. It's 6.30 p.m. Central Time. The plane carrying the sealed wooden crates land in Fort Worth. The crate is unloaded and wheeled into an empty hangar there on the base. And Marcel was actually in Fort Worth, remember, overnight. And he flies back to Roswell with them on the return flight. The moment he gets back to Roswell that evening, they are given orders never mention that flight to Fort Worth. So by now, the media has reported the weather balloon story and that authorities in Washington have apparently given personnel in Roswell a chewing out over the first story, but this never actually happened. By the morning of July 10th, 1947, The Roswell Air Base is still under tight lockdown, but things are slowly getting back to normal. Mm -hmm. Most of the debris has been flown out of Roswell and taken to various places around the country. That morning, military police went to Sheriff Wilcox's office and demanded that he surrender the boxes of debris that Brazel had given to him, apparently roughing him up, getting physical with him, until he finally pointed at a closet there in the sheriff's office where he was keeping it. But most shitty of all, Wilcox's two daughters were there and apparently saw their dad. Oh, get roughed up that way. That's so terrible. At 8 a.m. that morning back on the base, Marcel finds Cavett and demands to see the report on what was filed while he was being held down in Fort Worth. Right. But Cavett refuses. Marcel loses his temper and shouts, I outrank you. But Cavett just responds, sorry, I take my orders from Washington (gasps) and walks away. Now, later, because Brazel and Cabot were very good friends outside of the military. And even though that was kind of a bump the road, they apparently still remained friends because they would, like, at least once a week go over and play bridge, them and their wives. They'd go to each other's houses. And apparently later that week, Marcel's wife was talking about how the women were actually in the living room playing bridge and the men were in the kitchen playing with this metal. Oh, wow. Even though they had been told they couldn't. That morning, Mac Brazel's son, Bill Brazel, sees the news, and he and his wife go down to Foster Ranch to help as well. Paul Brazel once again tries to help the horses at the ranch, but is turned away. The entire time he's been detained, he hasn't been allowed to sleep, as well as he's undergone a very intense physical examination, a full body, full cavity search. Oh, good Lord. You hate to hear that. And on this day, President Truman is asked about the situation, and he just laughs it off as one big misunderstanding. Bill Brazel and his wife arrive at Foster Ranch to find it deserted. Mm. By now, military personnel are all gone, and all debris are gone. And what they can't understand is why their dad is still detained over a stupid weather balloon 
Friday, July 11th, 1947, any and all civilians that saw anything that had to do with this were apparently rounded up and taken to Roswell Base. And in groups, they were taken inside and sworn to secrecy and told that the situation is highly classified and it's a matter of national security. Mm. Over the next few days, the Pentagon orders the Army to conduct weather balloon launches for the press in an attempt to cover the flying disc reports. The media quickly forgets all this talk about UFOs and moves on. In the following days, ranchers that lived nearby Foster Ranch would be routinely harassed by the military. One rancher had used a piece of debris to mend the roof of a stable for his pigs. The military quickly came and ripped that off. Hmm. Monsoon season in July and August continued, and Mac Brazel would actually continue to find little pieces of debris every time it rained that would wash up from the ground. He would begin to collect for his own private collection. Saturday, July 12th, 1947, after five days of detainment, Brazel is released from the base and returned home, a shell of the man he used to be. Oh no. He tells his son it's better off just not knowing what happened. A couple years later in 1949, Bill Brazel, Mac Brazel's son, was at Wade's Bar in Roswell when he says that he found some of this old wreckage his dad had found that had washed up in the rain. The next day, military police came to Bill Brazel and hounded him until he surrendered the stuff he had found. This was two years later. Yeah, something is going on. When people say that Roswell was just a complete fake, I don't buy it. Something was going on. Two years later. So what happened to Brazel's family after all of this? Here's a direct quote from my source witness to Roswell. Months after returning home in 1960 after serving in the Navy, Brazel's youngest son Vernon would disappear. Mac himself would die of a massive heart attack in 1963. Bill's son, Mac's grandson, William R. Brazel, was shot to death while hunting with two companions in 1964. And one other hunter was also killed by a second bullet. The state police concluded that both were shot accidentally. Is it any wonder that Mac Brazel was sorry he ever told anyone back in 1947? Think about that. A hunting accident. Oh my God. So there's three people out hunting and an accident happens where two people die? How do you make an accident where you shoot two people with two separate bullets? What kind of accident would that be? I mean, a wild, wild coincidence accident type situation. And the whole, the fact that the whole family has just gone through this like hell since then, I mean, damn. Well, the government would actually revise its own story a few times throughout history. Oh, really? Here's another excerpt from Witness to Roswell. By 1994, what crashed was now a high-flying contraption composed of multiple balloons, multiple radar targets, and a listening device belonging to a special project, Project Mogul, that fell to Earth near Roswell. Although the project's purpose, to detect sound waves from the anticipated detonation of the Soviet Union's first atomic bomb by employing high-altitude balloon-borne acoustic sensors, was top secret, its off-the-shelf components were not. Far from it. The prosaic rubber balloons, tinfoil radar targets, and balsa wood struts used in the project were the exact same types used in most weather balloons and radar targets of the time. Materials that any six-year-old would have no trouble identifying. Then, in 1997, the 50th anniversary of the Roswell crash, the Air Force brazenly offered up its fourth explanation. This one to try and deal with the long-held rumors and eyewitness accounts of diminutive three-and-a-half to four-foot-tall alien bodies that were alleged to have been recovered from the Roswell crash. 
Known as the dummy explanation, for obvious reasons, the Air Force spokesman was met with derisive howls of laughter from members of the press when he attributed such claims to the Air Force's f use of full-size, six-foot-tall mannequins in several projects involving high-altitude parachute drops that were conducted in New Mexico in the 1950s in preparation for our country's manned space program. To explain away the 10-year time disparity, the Air Force claimed that the witnesses were unwitting victims of a mental processing affliction known as time compression, whereby recollections of past events tend to contract the time frames in which they took place as a person ages. Thus, those who claimed to have seen alien bodies in Roswell in 1947 were really remembering a crash encountered with crash test dummies that they somehow stumbled upon while searching for rattlesnakes out in the desert in 1959. Project Mogul and Dummies from Above continue to be the Air Force's explanation for the Roswell crash. Okay, so gaslighting. Absolutely. Just absolute gaslighting saying, oh, you're that thing that you think was reality, um, you're completely wrong and your reality is not correct. And actually, it was just another completely different situation. So theories. Yeah. I want to get into this batshit cuckoo-ness. I also especially want to hear about this ancient Greek situation. Dylan, what do you think? What are some theories as to what the hell really went down? Well, there's many, obviously. If we go by the alien theory, that these are extraterrestrials. Yes. Some believe that when we detonated the first atomic bomb, mm -hmm. when we first split the atom, we suddenly popped up on the radar of extraterrestrials. Yes. I mean, it's weird that they're all coming to this area. Yeah, it is very weird. And also seemingly kind of all of the sudden. Right. But it does kind of make sense going along with the dropping of the atomic bomb. Another theory is that what we see when we're seeing UFOs is that they're actually battling it out with other alien forces. Oh. Kind of like we're in the we're like that chunk of land they're fighting over. Oh. Like we're just the middle we're the proxy war. Okay. Another theory is that when we split the atom, we somehow opened a portal through dimensions. Yeah, that's interesting. That these are interdimensional creatures. Perhaps even the crafts themselves are living machines. <gasps> Weird living machines. That blows my mind and kind of freaks me out. But I have heard that before, yes. I mean, that does make sense with all of this radiation and whatever was going on with the atomic bomb. I mean, who knows? Right. Maybe these guys have always been around us, but just now there are these wormholes or whatever the fuck is going on. Right, absolutely. And now we're popping off with these damn aliens. Now about that strange writing. Yeah, what the actual hell? Being ancient Greek and all, if that's really what it was, because apparently on one of the photos, you can see written this word, I think it's like eleftheria, but apparently it meant like freedom hmm. in ancient Greek or something. Some theorize that these aliens are actually Atlanteans. Oh that they were these there was some sort of global event. The advanced people of, of Atlantis left the planet mm -hmm. and have kind of been on an outpost watching us, sending back and at certain times in our history, helping us evolve. Right. Giving us little bits of technology to advance. And maybe these little greys were just biological little androids, mm. like probes that were sent to operate. They weren't like living, thinking beings. You know what I mean? Interesting. Something like that. Yeah. But here's another theory. And this, I think, is very interesting. What the fuck was with that first press release? Oh, yeah. You know, and some people argue that it was just government incompetence or whatever. Right. But what if it wasn't? What if it was intentional? Mm. What if they intentionally released a story about aliens and then intentionally a half hour later released a story that it was actually a weather balloon? 
because it's something else entirely that right. they would rather us think it's either aliens or oh. this. That they would rather have us distrust them, thinking we're covering up alien or whatever, because it's something else. It's something else, even weirder, even more bizarre, even more dangerous, possibly. Right. Something like that. Some It's some kind of government Who just lets that experiment. press release? That first press release? Yeah, that is that is weird that who, it got Who there. just lets that happen? I mean, I guess it's possible that it could have just slipped through the cracks, but, right. uh, you know, I think it is very interesting to think about what this could be trying to cover up for. Right. And why is Jesse Marcel the only one mentioned by name in the press release? It's like he was right. a fall guy. Hmm. Yes. He realized it when he walked back in the office and the weather balloon was there and not his debris he brought. Right. He realized, oh, this is what we're doing. This is what's going on. And I got to take photos now with the... And it's one of those famous photos. You can see him holding the... And just being like, yeah. hello. Yeah. I mean, something clearly went on here. I don't know what exactly happened, but this definitely isn't something that just is lore that got out of control. I mean, it is lore that got out of control, but there is something real that really happened here that was of great import. Absolutely. You know? And it's like, what? I, I, let us know, Creep Street. Email us at creepstreetpodcast at gmail.com or let us know on any socials or anything like that. Your thoughts about Roswell, what you think is going on here. Because I would love to hear any of your theories or your thoughts on the matters because this is a weird one and this is a huge one. Absolutely. And that wraps it up for the 100th episode of Creep Street, The Roswell Crash. Dylan, wow, 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 wow. Thank you so much for doing all of that incredible hard work on this episode, our 100th episode of this show. You guys, we can't tell you how many bizarre, fun, weird, creepy, uplifting, enlightening books, TV shows, articles, documentaries, podcasts, YouTube videos, so many things that we have consumed over this past 100 episodes to bring you the creepiest stuff. And let me tell you, it has been an absolute honor every step of the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now let me read to you the names of our top tier Patreon subscribers. Oh, thank God. This is so important. Of course, the dream James Watkins, the Finnish face via Alungfist, the madman Marcus Hall, the vivacious Vicky McHugh, the tenacious Teresa Hackworth, the heartbreak kid Chris Hackworth, the oh-so-suave Sean Richardson, the British bonebreaker Bex Martin, the notorious Nicholas Barker, the terrifying Taylor Lashmet, the Count of Cool Cameron Corliss, the Archduke of Attitude Adam Archer, the sinister Sam Kiker, the nightmare of New Zealand Noeline Vivilli, the loathsome Johnny Love, the carnivorous Kevin Bogey, and the killer stud, Carl Starr. That felt so good. Wow. Thank you, Dylan, so much for reading off those incredible top-tier names. Oh, yeah. We love all of our Patreon subscribers and all of you out there for listening. To support the podcast, feel free to check out patreon.com. Also, like, rate, subscribe. Tell your coworkers. Tell your spouse. Tell your dog tell your mailman just spread the good word of creep street we are going to be in just a couple weeks here we are going to be at days of the dead here in rosemont right outside of chicago in december 10th through the 12th we'll we will be in chicago at c2e2 with our show or our panel the night of the 10th that is friday night at seven o'clock oh yeah we hope to see some of you there if you have any questions or comments or ideas for us or anything you'd like to see feel free to email us at creepstreetpodcast at gmail.com reach out to us on our socials 
comment on YouTube, whatever you want to do. We would love to hear from you. Citizens of the Milky Way, my name is Dylan Hackworth. I'm Maureen Bogey. Good night and goodbye. Goodbye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.